Should human doctors and dentists be allowed to perform procedures on pets? This week on The Veterinary Viewfinder. Welcome back to The Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And this week, it's all about veterinary medicine being practiced by non-veterinarians. News stories are breaking all around the country about well-intentioned human surgeons and physicians and dentists and more performing procedures on pets. And today we want to find out if that's okay with us. But before we get into that, as always, I am your host, Dr. Ernie Ward. I'm Dr. Cindy Courtney. And I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And guys, this conversation started when I ran across a news story out of Georgia, and it was detailing a human surgeon who has started an organization called Surgeons for Strays. And basically, he had done this pretty complicated hip surgery, you know, hip replacement, all kinds of plates and pins, really advanced stuff on a dog. And I called Becky and I said, hey, Becky, have you ever heard of stories like this? And Becky was like, Okay, so I was like, oh, yeah, literally was at the dentist yesterday. And as I'm laying there, luckily with my mouth already agape, I was listening to a story of my hygienist telling me how she had just done a prophylaxis on her dog the previous weekend because her veterinarian had let her. This whole conversation then kicked off between the three of us. And we're kind of going, wait a second, you know, what's preventing me from like going helping kids out with their dental procedure, right? Like I've done a lot of dentals. Why can't I go help underserved needy children? So Cindy, do you think I could go do an extraction on some child somewhere? You know, what's really interesting is I, in the mom's group, there are actually a lot of veterinarians whose kids refer to human doctors as people vets. Because, I mean, it's right. Like, we treat multiple species, and it's just humans are just another species, right? So why not, guys? Why why shouldn't vets just add one more primate to our list and go from there? I mean, physicians are really just a subset of veterinarians, right? (laughs) Well, I I will tell you, we don't – this is a good topic, and I really want to hear our listeners' opinions on this. But I, I will tell you that we don't get any credit for, like, being able to help uh, people. I, I've, if you've been to my lectures over the past 10 years, you know that I fly a lot and I've two occasions, there's been somebody with cardiac arrest. I sprung into action and was immediately confronted by a, an airline stewardess or hostess or whatever we're supposed to call them these days and saying, are you a doctor? And I said, no, I'm a veterinarian. At which case it was like, well then sit down <laughs> until we can get a doctor. And in one of the cases, the guy was totally coded And of course, I began administering CPR because I just kind of said, no, I'm going to help this person out. Uh, He did make it. I don't know how, if he continued to live, you know, they only told us uh, the next day that he had survived. But my point being that, you know, yeah, when a vet tries to go and help a human, people are suspect. But it sounds to me like if a dog was having a a cardiac arrest on a plane, it'd be like, hey, yeah, you're a doctor (laughs) nurse. Have at it. Yeah. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point, right? Like, would they have the same response if it was an animal having an emergency? And I think that's exactly what we're talking about here is, you know, I, I've heard from veterinarians before, you know, that they don't they don't feel like they're considered by the general public as quote unquote real doctors, right? And and so is this just sort of that living example of it where they're not looking at you as a real doctor? I'm like, is there cardiac arrest happening? Are, are you willing to save this person? All right, go to town. 
there was another story too that broke after this Georgia story, and uh, it came out of Colorado State University. And basically, there was a dog there that had a to have a heart valve replacement, a pretty advanced procedure again for veterinarians. In fact, this particular procedure had never apparently been performed on a dog in history, and so they brought over a human interventional cardiologist to do the procedure. Now, obviously, veterinarians were in attendance, but Cindy, how does that hit you, right? So we're doing this advanced procedure and we're calling on our human saviors to come over and help us out. I mean, I don't know. It just kind of hit me weird. So, you know, I find it really interesting because I feel like these type of cases fall into two very distinct categories. So one, I think there are cases where we have a the potential to lean on some additional medical expertise. So we know that there are areas where human medicine is further ahead of the curve than veterinary medicine. And I think we understand that One Health is a really important concept. And I think it's important for us to be able to collaborate and learn from one another. Um, and we were actually having some discussion before the podcast about areas where that goes the other direction too, where some technology that's been helpful in animals has ended up being really helpful in regenerating um, and and performing knee surgery in people. So, So I think we should be able to have those discussions, conversations, and collaborations between human physicians and veterinarians. But, you know, I think there's a distinct difference between doing, you know, medical procedures on a gorilla or a chimpanzee or a heart valve that we've never done in a dog before and going out and doing a ton of, you know, orthopedic surgery when there are veterinarians qualified to do that. So I couldn't find an analogous story where a human was about to have this, you know, groundbreaking procedure and they called in a veterinarian to do it for them. You you get where I'm going. It seems okay. It's like a unilateral relationship instead of this bilateral one health. I mean, so Cindy, you you get where I'm going with this. And that's what I'm saying is that there actually are cases where there are veterinarians who are leaders of major, like the Mizzou BioJoint Health Center, where there are veterinarians who are involved in helping lead the charge there. Um, so, So I guess I certainly don't think there are, it's as widely published or there are as many news stories about it. And maybe that's a particular issue, but certainly there are veterinarians involved at the forefront of, of some of these sorts of medicine as to whether or not they're getting their hands into the procedure. Is that being publicized or do people want it to be publicized? I don't know. Well, that's what I want to ask. So, so let's get, get back to the situation. Let's say that you had a daughter, a child, who had to have some kind of whatever bizarre surgery, some kind of procedure, or even an infection, and they brought in a veterinarian. I just would love to know from our our audience, you know, what would you think about that, right? Would you think that's a level up in the quality of care, or or is it somehow, wait a second, you mean the best you've got is a vet? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's sort of what I'm thinking, is if I was in need of life-saving surgery, I kind of think back to the recover philosophy. The recover CPR philosophy is the person who does it is the one that has the most experience. That's who runs the code. And so when we're talking about something experimental, when we're talking about something groundbreaking, when we're talking about something introductory, can we absolutely say the person who has the most experience, whatever side they fall on in this groundbreaking procedure is absolutely the one with the most experience. When it comes to collaboration, when it comes to development, I think that there is 
a lot of different great ways of thinking on both sides of the medical lines. And so I think collaborating is really smart. But to Dr. Cindy's point, and I think the bottom line of this conversation is when we're talking about everyday procedures, that there is perfectly qualified professionals in the lane of the medical need, then those are the people who should be performing that procedure. And to, to this point, this this gentleman, this this human doctor is working in the veterinary lane on a procedure that there are more than plenty qualified individuals to be doing this surgery. And and to respond to your direct question, Ernie, I think when it comes to our own family members, I, I one definitely agree that there is a perceptual, contextual, emotional difference between thinking about, oh, this is a human doctor humans are the ultimate. So if someone works on humans, they must be amazingly highly qualified. But at the same time, I I mean, we look at people who are in situations where they just really need help and really need care. Like if you have really severe knee problems, or if you have cancer, or if you have a brain tumor, one of my uh, vet school professors works on collaborative medicine in meningiomas, you know, often you're looking for something new and something different. I think the big thing there is, is there going to be disclosure? Are you going to know what's going on? Um, Or is this going to be something that totally blindsides you where you had no idea that this is something experimental or new? Okay, but so like to take it back to the beginning then, we get out of the experimental lane. We get out of the developmental lane. Let's go back to the dude doing the the surgery. Let's go back to my hygienist at the veterinary clinic cleaning her own dog's teeth. We know that there is some gray area between the client-owned pet and what you can perform on your own pet and the legalities associated with that. But at the end of the day, there was a veterinarian standing there amused and entertained by the fact that this human hygienist has her own dog under anesthesia and is performing dental prophylaxis. Like, what about that? Is that supporting our own industry? Is that okay ethically? Like, like, are we mad at this guy or not? Right, exactly. You know, I, I will share with you a story also, Cindy and Becky. When I was in veterinary school uh, at the time, our associate dean was a guy named Michael Lorenz. Dr. Lorenz, you know, amazing trauma surgeon, really pioneer in emergency medicine. Well, he was deployed to Vietnam and he was this veterinarian, this amazing surgeon, right, for, for animals. And so he was assuming that he would be like in a mash unit. Well, instead, because he was a veterinarian and not a human physician, He was relegated to the field. He was a field medic. And I will tell you, he gave us multiple lectures where he'd show all these pictures of these procedures. He actually pioneered a lot of stuff to do in the field, but yet he was never able to actually go and work in the quote unquote field hospitals. He could only be on the battlefield. You get where I'm going with this. And so even though he was probably much more qualified than a lot of those human physicians in these mass units or whatever, he couldn't go in the, in the, in the hospital because he was a veterinarian. Yeah. Just throwing it out. There. You know, and and actually there I've had some thoughts about, you know, with the whole student debt issue and the fact that <laughs> we have you know these massive investments in infrastructure around veterinary education and are there innovative ways to cut down on that? Again, how much overlap is there between we've been talking about this with the veterinary nurse initiative too, right? Like how much overlap is there between so much of this education in terms of anatomy and biochemistry and pharmacology? And, and, and it just, it seems interesting to me that we forget how much overlap there is. And, and a lot of human medical schools, you know, even between some of their fields, like I went to Howard university and they had dental students there taking anatomy. And so I, I think we, 
maybe are underestimating how much overlap there is and there isn't public recognition of that. I, I totally agree with you. But here, you know, these other existential threats. I mean, what if a veterinarian wanted to do dentistry? Like I can tell you right now that would get shut down. But let's go into the future. What if a human nurse wanted to do some type of basic rehab on a pet? I mean, Becky, what do you think the pushback would be there? Yeah, I mean, well, and I think that that is the the part that frustrates me the most within our own industry is I think when it's entertaining, quote unquote, to a veterinarian and they feel like they're dealing with an owner who's going to be performing something on their own pet or they're performing a service that they can't, um, I, I think it's one thing. But, you know, one thing that occurs to me um, is when it when it becomes threatening to them is when they get angry. Right. So I think back to when chiropractors were starting to provide chiropractic care to pets and it got really, you know, inflammatory within the veterinary industry because they were like, how dare they? How dare they? You know, this is our industry. <laughs> and we lost but, that. It's it's now being done. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and I kind of think to myself, like, you're right. I mean, we do have a we do tend to hand a lot of things over. Right. And and but then again, do we kind of create these situations to ourselves? So I think about chiropractics, acupuncture, all these alternative therapies that are, you know, human certified performing on pets on a regular basis. Right. And Becky and Cindy, you've both made a really good point that I want to repeat. And that is that, OK, right now it's it's accepted because it's infrequent. It just happens every now and then. There's a surgeon in Atlanta. He's doing great. He calls himself St. John of Atlanta. He's doing amazing things. And nobody really pushes back, right? But is that the beginning? Are we now sliding down a slippery slope that one day leads to a human physician who's semi-retired who says, you know what? Why can't I treat sick dogs? You know, I'm capable. Right. Absolutely. And and, and again, to Dr. Cindy's point, I think there is a One Health initiative that is really important interesting and important. And, um, there are really good things to be had, but I think when it becomes recreational and it's just a, a basis of medical knowledge, what we know is there's absolutely huge differences. Um, you know, but then again, the whole topic of people taking someone else's credential and just using experience to do their job <laughs> is awfully familiar <laughs> to me. So I want to get back to that, but I know Cindy, you had something you wanted to jump in on. Yeah. So, so to play a little bit of devil's advocate, we all know that on both sides of this issue, there is a lot of guilt. So I know when I when I joined my mom's group for DVMs, there is a lot of consultation online about my kid has this rash. What do you think I should use on it? And we know from having medical professionals come in trying to treat their own animals that there are a lot of people doing that, too. So so I, I also kind of want to just highlight that. This is not something on the veterinary side where we are completely innocent either of avoiding trying to treat our own family members. Um, and again, we're just we not making the news. We're just not being profiled on big news stories. I mean, well, I think now again, Sarah, Dr. Sarah Boston, an oncologist, has a best selling book based on the fact that her veterinary experience helped her diagnose and get treatment for her own thyroid cancer. So, so I, I just, Again, I, I get it that it's different when it's yourself versus actively going and treating another human being. But I think, too, it's the difference between popping your three year old up on the table and doing dental prophylaxis and <laughs> and just saying that that's completely appropriate because you have access to the equipment and everything you need to do it. And so therefore, why would you possibly, you know, what's the point in sending them to the dentist because you have accessibility and skill? Well, let me share one other thing. So as I was researching uh, for this podcast, I, I wanted to see like, what kind of information 
human physicians at their offices and dentists put on their websites, right? And I kind of got a little scared because there's this thing where human dentists have information on dental care for pets. Now, I've owned two large clinics. I've been in veterinary medicine my entire career. I never put a handout on my website that in any way talked about treating humans. Are they crossing a line there? I, I mean, like to me, I feel like yes. And and my instantaneous reaction, the first thing that came to mind is like, where where's our medical boards? Um, where is the enforcement on this? Because to me, that does seem encroaching. And I think that if this was flip-flopped, if there was a, you know, um, a, a section on your website on how to take care of your kid's teeth, th- you absolutely would have a cease and desist letter in the mail, <laughs> you know, within 30 days from some lawyer, from some vet, you know, human medical association. And I think obviously a big hurdle here is just liability, right? I mean, we know even from our perspective, yes, we, we have liability, but it is not anywhere near the degree of liability that these human physicians have. So I think that may be one of the reasons that this relationship is so asymmetrical. Um, And I I think that's understandable. I mean, at the end of the day, we value a human life a lot more than we value an animal life. Well, right. It's at all costs, right? And so we know that we, we take those kinds of measures. I just find it really surprising that you know, there is no kind of enforcement or, or you know, inflammatory response. And I can't really see where, you know, Atlanta veterinarians are are angry or upset or the medical board is is weighing in. Um, this guy's kind of being touted as a hero, is he not? Yeah, yeah. He made the Atlanta Journal and Constitution. They had a big profile on him. I mean, so look, and I applaud the guy, right? He's trying to help. So I got no problem with that. I'm just simply saying, should we be questioning this? Should we be sort of defining this? Because my only fear is, am I looking into the future and five or 10 years down the road, is this becoming, as you mentioned, Becky, like veterinary chiropractic now, not not being practiced by veterinarians, but being practiced by chiropractic doctors. I mean, and I could be completely wrong, but I guess I just feel like this is defined. I feel like you have to have a veterinary degree and license to perform an operation on a dog. And so when you say we, we need to define this, I, I, I guess I'm wrong. I feel like this is defined. He's breaking the law, is he not? Right. So Cindy, let me ask you this. Let's say again, a, another type of example, and I, I just would like to get your opinion. So now I am a human dentist. I'm a physician. I'm a nurse. It really doesn't matter. Right. But I set, I go, you know what? I, I've always wanted to help rescued animals, animals that don't have a home, animals that nobody cares for. And then you want to apply whatever your professional experience and expertise was to those animals. Now, if you go and criticize this person for doing this, are you say, are you going to say, oh, so you just want these poor abandoned animals to suffer, right? I mean, it's kind of a bulletproof situation for these individuals in many circumstances. Am I right? Well, and I think it's interesting from, from two levels. So one, I think Becky's spot on that you know, this is an enforcement issue. It's a, it, it's partly an issue of, okay, well, yeah, we have clearly defined guidelines about what is the practice of veterinary medicine and we're not defending them. And it's not just in, in these cases where we have these human medical professionals coming in, even to the degree that somehow we're allowing breeders to make medical decisions a legal part of their contract like that just seems crazy so 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 how how are we even as a profession defending our own uh, scope of practice and not not to mention the scope of uh, veterinary nursing um 
And then on the other side of this, once we have that defined, do we decide as a profession to allow that to happen or not? If if we do have an undersupply of veterinarians, if we do decide as a profession, we want to help these animals in need. Are, are we coming up with a, as a profession with ways to help those animals or not? That's, that's, that's so good because this is where my fear really is, right? If we say there's this undersupply of veterinarians and veterinary technicians, are we inviting this type of potential competition? But Becky, I want to get back to, to where you landed earlier. And that is, okay, we've been talking a lot on this podcast, of course, the whole you know, veterinary profession in the U.S. has been talking about this issue of, of the veterinary nurse initiative. Now, the biggest pushback, as we had Liz Houston on here, is like it's coming from human nurses who lay claim and in 39 states have a legal status with the term nurse. So nobody else can even go close to that term, right, without you know, having to change the state laws. And yet, <laughs> we are going example after example of, of human doctors and dentists stepping all over us. I mean, am I, am I missing something here or is this a little bit contradictory? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's contradictory. I think it's par for the course within, within <laughs> our own industry in dysfunction, right? Because it's exactly what step what all we over watch. us, but we right. can't even go near you. Don't look right. at us wrong. Right. Wow. And, and we watch that and we watch that every day, right? I, like I, like I watch people working within and, and again like dr cindy said there is a shortage issue and I, and I do i understand that but at the end of the day like yeah this is this is what we do for ourselves on a regular basis we invite that every single day and i've been in clinics that have brought in human doctors to perform root canals because they didn't know how and they didn't want the tooth lost um the the client didn't want the tooth lost for appearance reasons and they weren't going to pay specialty prices and so um you know, we're in a real conundrum here. And again, within our industry, we rarely, rarely support ourselves. And Becky, let me just jump in on that because here's the issue, right? The client, the owner of that dog or cat who had the human dentist come in and fix their dog's tooth, do the root canal, whatever, right? They're going to be so grateful. They're going to say, thank you. Thank you. That's amazing. You created tremendous value. Now, let me just back that one up. Let's say my child needs a root canal. Right. <laughs> right. Now, am I then going to go, wait, you had a, dent, a veterinarian, veterinary dentist do this on my child? Oh, yes. You know, this was a much more complex procedure, a lot like a cheetah. And we thought that they would be perfect for this. <laughs> I would be like, whoa, wait a second. Right. Right. Uh, Cindy, am I, am I off base? Yeah. So, you know, I, so I think also for the rescue analogy or for the undersupply analogy, I think about what if one of us, what if a veterinarian went to some third world country where they don't have enough medical care and we're performing medical services? So, so I think about that, although with a, with the caveat that there are programs, like for instance, um, in, I know Virginia, Maryland at one point was looking at putting together a DVM slash physician's assistant program so that there literally would be people who would be able to legally provide medical care and veterinary care to be able to provide it in rural areas that might not have access to both. But I do think there would be an outrage to say, okay, in some third world country, they don't have enough doctors. So we said a veterinarian and that was good enough. <laughs> like that would not go over well. Like no, you would have no. to have some, some qualifications. You're so um, right. 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 So um, I think what is interesting though, is that I think we're highlighting that 
what is going unrecognized is that the regular contributions that veterinarians are making to One Health are going unrecognized. Because I was just talking with a colleague of mine who's going to speak at a portosystemic shunt conference, and we see way more portosystemic shunts in veterinary medicine than they do in human medicine. And they are so excited to have her there because this is her field. She's very passionate about it. She loves doing you know, those surgeries. And this is something that isn't very common or familiar to them in human medicine, and they can potentially really help a lot of children by having that information. So so why not? Why not? And what can we do as a profession to help just the public understand what veterinarians have to contribute? Yeah, and I think you, there is a difference between sharing a wonderful knowledge set and performing skills. And and if I had to draw lines, I think it's where it is. I think they're great conversations to be had. I think there is a wonderful knowledge exchange and and just experience. I mean, my own friend passed away from a condition that is extremely rare, not extremely rare in people, but very, very rare in people. But it's super common in Cavalier King Charles Spaniels. We see it a lot. And so there is so much to be learned Um from one side from another but i think it is it is the line of performing these procedures and becoming physically involved with a patient and developing a client patient relationship based on a species you're not trained to per- or licensed to perform on and and i'm going to challenge you a little bit i don't necessarily even have a problem with that like if someone has a lot of skill and and even is trained on that, I I think the big thing is where is the collaboration and what is the degree of collaboration and are people aware of what's going on? Because again, my my friend may have a lot more experience placing amyloid rings around portosystemic shunts um, and may be able to demonstrate that or illustrate that more competently than a human physician would. I, I don't know. Again, I don't have that full context, but I think again, the, the importance is collaboration. You know, when we have a veterinary anesthetist performing anesthesia there, or we have someone who's able to inform that surgeon about the differences in, in veterinary anatomy. Like all those things are really important. And without the right collaboration, we don't have the right context to do what we're doing. Sure. And and again, I do. I completely agree with the collaboration. I just think there are set lines that come down to the law that's currently written and how it's written. And I think there are amazing learning models and cadaver model opportunities to really share knowledge that doesn't involve patients. And it's out of respect for our own industry and both industries saying um, outside of an experimental environment, we need to be drawing these lines and we need to be drawing them because we don't have enough respect within our own industry as it is right now, let alone giving it away. Right. And I think, you know, as I'm listening to you guys and, and sort of exploring this conversation, this really goes back to the root of, of a, sort of this, this lack of self-worth of our profession. Like we've always felt, or many of us feel inferior in some way to human doctors. Like we, we're like the, the, you know, Becky, how you're always saying like, it's not a consolation prize to be a veterinary technician. Well, I think there are some people that still carry that sentiment being a veterinarian. Well, you couldn't be a doctor, a human doctor, so you became a veterinarian. That kind of weird stuff. It's nonsense. And I think that this this lack of self-confidence as a profession leads us to sort of bristle at these things. And more importantly, like you're saying, Becky, it actually allows us to tolerate it because we don't push back hard enough, you know, because I can guarantee you that if Cindy or I, with our wealth of experience and education, in any way tried to fix a kid's teeth, or fix their portosystemic shunt, <laughs> we would be hauled away in handcuffs. And and it makes me think about why doesn't this surgeon in Atlanta donate money to allow a veterinary orthopedist to do these procedures? 
Like, I, I guess for me, the idea that the only way that this person can help or contribute if this is really his cause is to physically do it himself. That's just not true. Well, so exactly. I think we and have I, to right. ask, what yes. is he not doing? Right. I thought that to myself, too. Like, if you're so super passionate, then you lead the cause on this. You get involved on this. Or, I don't know, go to vet school <laughs> like everybody else did to be able to do this. It's completely up to you. You already have a bunch of the prereqs. I mean, or couldn't you get in? Oop, sorry. Oh, that's Ooh. right. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, we could talk about this for hours. I love this kind of conversation because, you know, this is a topic that, again, I feel like in some ways we're on to something way early and these are the warning signs and the beginnings of the drips of the drops that turn into a deluge of change if we're not careful. But you've heard what we have to say. Now we want to hear from you. What kind of stories have you heard or have you had personal experiences with either clients or medical professionals trying to provide medical care for better or worse for their pets? Have you heard about independent physicians uh, volunteering their services one way or another. Reach out to us on Facebook at Veterinary Viewfinder or share pictures of those animals on Instagram at Veterinary Viewfinder. Please make sure to leave us a review as well if you enjoy podcasts like this at uh, iTunes on the Apple Store. And don't forget while you're there to click to subscribe so you don't miss one great episode of the Veterinary Viewfinder. Until next time, keep practicing veterinary medicine. Bye. Hey, Docs, let me ask you. I've got this. Yeah, exactly. And Cindy, you know, remember way back in the day, they fought to call us doctors. I mean, this is why only in the UK, they've recently started saying you're a doctor. You know, it's, they don't want to confuse the public. I, I have to admit, I ha- my husband has a standing request to tell me when I start trying to diagnose myself, though, to be like, go see the doctor. <laughs> well, I've like, had I'm not so gonna many colleagues. Yeah. Like, I had pink eye, and they were like, Okay, we're just going to give you this from our shelves. And I was like, no, guys, you know me, I'm such a real I mean, I, I, if I had the option, like, I hope for One Health because I prefer veterinary care. Like, I, I think veterinarians do a better job. I think human medicine is all kinds of jacked up. So, like, to me, I get it. But it, I really think that, like, the humans treading on us, it's like, yeah. But, I'm, I mean, you're right. We do it. We do it all the time. Yeah.